This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not treat anything in this episode as financial or other advice. The hosts and guests may hold positions in some of the companies and securities discussed. Remember to seek independent professional advice relating to your own circumstances before making any investment decisions. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. <laughs> Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Joel. And this is Sam. And welcome to Trawling for Ten Days. This podcast is about learning how to identify high conviction opportunities in small caps on the ASX. We talk to the experts in the space to help you learn how to speculate and protect your capital longer term. We're joined today by Fahim from 952R Capital we talk about how he got interested in the stock market, the tips and tricks he's learned, some of the potential things to watch for to spot a 10-bagger early, and much more. It was a really interesting conversation, and we hope you get as much out of it as we did chatting to him. All right. Thank you very much, Fahim, for joining us this morning. Um, do you want to start out by telling the listeners uh, how you got started in, in investing or looking at small cap stocks and, and why you're interested in the stock market? Yeah, um, so in 2014, I quit my job as dishwashing. Um, it was a trash job. I got paid about $10 an hour cash in hand, and I saved about $300 then. And um, I had a friend who knew a little bit about stockbroking, and he purchased $300 worth of LNG shares for me. And this was in 2014, so the share price was in the $2. And... It doubled quite quickly from there, so we thought we were geniuses. And he was also from a medical background, so he was studying in uni, and it was a medical degree. And after that, our money got put into SRX, and that one doubled as well. So at this stage, we were over the moon. Uh, We thought it was pretty easy. And around 2015, I got a call from a friend who was a stockbroker at NAB, and he used to take call, um, orders over the phone. And he was telling me that fine, we've never seen orders and the stock was AZK. And he told me we've never seen orders at this size, at this frequency for AZK. And at that time, AZK was two cents. So I thought this is just absolute trash. There's no way it's gonna go anywhere. Uh, that was my whole mentality around penny stocks. And in about a couple of weeks, the thing went to eight cents and I got a message from him saying, I told you so. And I had a look at the price and I thought I could have multiplied my money by four if I just listened to him. Um, At this time also, I managed to get a new job in Chatswood, which was paying a decent rate. So I was just saving like crazy from that. And I decided to drop everything I had on AZK, which I don't recommend at all. And the thing ended up sixfold. I remember... Two days later, the thing went to 22 cents from, and I was buying in at eight to 10 cents. And then soon after, it went to 62.5 cents. And I remember still being at work in Chatswood, looking at my phone, and I opened up my bank account and I saw $62,000 in there. And I thought that, you know, where I started, that was a huge sum of money. And I was on. I, I remember being on car sales, looking at pictures of Lamborghinis, and <laughs> thinking that you know, in about six months' time, if I keep going at this rate, I'll be driving a Lamborghini. So I was over the moon, and obviously the thing crashed. 
as all penny stocks do. And I ended up selling out for nothing at all. Um, but that did give me the stock market bug. So after that happened, I'm like, look, if I can double my money on LNG and I can sixfold my money on AZK, then I can do it again. Um, little did I know that we were going through a massive tech boom at the time, the whole RTO shell stuff. And I managed to buy the top of almost every single tech company there was. So your TMP, your NOR, your RYG, your RFN, CHP was there as well. And just um, for, for the listeners, those are Chapman's, Refined, um, and yeah, R- R- RYG. Well, what was that? That turned into... Uh, that was XPE. That turned into... Yeah, I think they had some some chip tech, I think. Some very advanced, you know, blue sky tech. And um, obviously, I bought into the story. And so I managed to blow up my account pretty fast. And I thought, if I keep going at this rate, I'm going to be completely bankrupt. So I took a step back from the market. And I had zero, I still had zero idea how things worked at the time. Um, I didn't know what market cap was. I didn't know what enterprise value, Appendix 3B, none of that. Um, so in 2015, I picked up my first book in the market, which was How I Made $2 Million on the Stock Market by Nicholas Darvis. Yeah, I've read that one as well. It's a great read and it's nice and short, so easy to get through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say it'd be in the top five to start with. Um, there is a few other books I preferred before that, but it was really helpful. Um, and we'll get some of those for, for our listeners in the notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be great. Uh, I've got, I've, yeah, so... After that, after reading that book, I remember I spent four hours every single day for a whole month just reading. I just wanted as many ebooks as I can to learn as much as I can so I can come back into the market and beat it. Um, it was a bit of like a, you know, a revenge sort of move that I got. I was, I, was, I was angry that the market managed to beat me so easily. But yeah, so I, I studied as much as I could. Um, so I had 17 books I covered all together. And the next few months, I started building a strategy. It wasn't a perfect strategy, but it was just enough, you know, to s- survive the market, not even pull in a profit, but just survive and not blow up my account. So, and then after that, it's just been a nonstop journey of just, you know, tweaking your strategy, getting better, learning. Yeah, terrific, Fahim. Do you want to just um, maybe cover off on, I guess, some of the, the basics that you just mentioned, you, you know, Appendix 3B? Your enterprise value because that's not even something we've had a, a chance to, to take our listeners through. So maybe just talk about what you're looking for and what you've learned to look for. Yeah. Um, so before I got into, you know, understanding what all that was, my, my perception of market was that, you know, you have this ASX committee and they choose the price of every single company at the end of the day. So that's how I thought price moved. I didn't have a clue what valuations were. So Appendix 3B is basically the formal name for shares on issue. So it's a formal notification companies put out or if they're bringing in new shares into the market and it'll give you a total sum on the shares on issue. So your, your market capitalization will just be the number of shares in the company times whatever the price is. And the enterprise value, which I focus a lot on these days, is how much the business is actually worth. So not the entire company. If you strip away management, if you strip away cash, if you strip away debt, how much is the market 
putting value on the business. And the way you do that is just you get the company value, which is your market capitalization. You take away the cash, you add on debt, and you just end up with your enterprise value in a very quick, short way of summarizing it. So, yeah. Cool. And just to go on, I suppose, from some of the stuff you mentioned before about in the intro there, Fahim, about the things that you learned along the way, is there any really big obvious challenges and mistakes that you remember that you, I guess, made earlier and then decided you, you didn't want to do? Or Yeah, yeah. Um, just because I didn't start with a huge sum of money, um, there was many challenges. First one is spreading my capital too thin. Um, I realized that, you know, after I made my first big win, I ended up buying a bunch of stocks and I tried to chase every, everything I liked. And I realized, you know, if your goal is to make small returns and diversify and be risk averse, then yes, that's the way you go. But that wasn't my goal. My goal was to build my account into six figures. And so when I spread myself too thin, you know, the drawdown versus the reward I was getting just wasn't cutting it at all. I was just making a couple hundred dollars and I was like, this is not how I can do it. Um, so I wanted exceptional reward, which required exceptional risk. So I had to pretty much undiversify. Um, the other big issue was having an anchorage bias. So before I'd taken any purchase, I'd spend a minimum, I'd say 10 hours researching the company before I take a purchase. And the issue is that obviously you're not going to research a perfect company every single time. But because I spent 10 hours researching it, I felt somewhat attached to it or anchored to it. I had a bias towards it. And I just find somewhere in me to sort of justify a reason for buying it. And it will be a really silly justification. But I just wanted to buy it because I put so much effort into looking into the company. And I felt like I knew it back to front. Um, so these days what I do is I go for something objective. So I rely back on statistic, objective valuations, peer comparisons, EV to jork ratios. And that really helps me get rid of any sort of anchorage bias or any of that. I can clearly see from the numbers whether something is either overvalued or undervalued, risk and reward. Ben, can you give us an example of, um, of something recently that you've looked at or taken a position in? Um, that sort of relates to those metrics that you just mentioned? Um, something recently. Or maybe even a historical example. Off the top of my head, um, WAF was something I liked. I've been buying that recently, West Africa. Um, they had a good EV to jork ratio there. So generally for gold plays, I look for, you know, it really depends on the stage. If you're a developer, you want EV to jork. Uh, I'd say under 25. Um, if you're an explorer, you really want that number low. If so if you're in resource expansion. So WAF was one I was looking at quite a while ago and that had a uh, quite a low EV to jork. Um, you know, the all-in sustaining costs were one of the, all-in site costs, sorry, was one of the lowest I've seen. Um, I had to even check if it was in USD or AUD because I was just confused about the price. Um, Bahim, can I just ask you, because the all-in sustaining cost is quite a, a, a good metric that most people who look at gold stocks will, yeah. will have a look. Do you want to just take 
yeah. um, listeners through what what you what you think's a good number and maybe just relate that to the Australian um, dollar gold price because that's what we're comparing. Yeah, you well, you have a look at the gold price. Um, your own side cost is basically the total sum it's going to cost you to extract one ounce of gold into pure gold, pretty much for 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 market sale. Have a look at your gold price. Take ten percent off it. Have a look at your all-in sustained costs, site costs, and look at your margin. So you do that for every single company, and it will give you a ten percent leeway, ten percent contingency if you take ten percent off the gold price, the current gold price. And um, yeah, just look at the margins for each company. You want to buy the ones with the best margins. They're going to be the ones that are most resilient during any downturn in the gold market. So WAF from memory, their AISC, their site cost was around $700 US. And gold price right now, I haven't checked it. What would it be? It'd be around $1,400, $500. Are you talking US or Australian? Australian. Uh, US. Yeah. 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 So you, their margins, pretty much, they're still in development. They haven't started producing, but they want to produce 300,000 ounces in your first year. Um, they're making almost 100% margins, or I think they are going to make 100% margins with that cost. So for every ounce of gold they produce, they're making about $700, $800. You multiply that by 300,000, and you get to see in your first year how much profit they're going to make. So compared to all its peers in development stage, was making you know a ridiculous sum of well they expected to make a ridiculous sum of profit and I I felt that's right by that up it was objective you know it wasn't any sort of bias in me telling me you know it's an African company and you love African companies so it was just purely objective purely statistical and it, it just makes it, it builds conviction as well for me I feel like there's a there's you know there's a proper reason for me to buy into something Okay, terrific, Fahim. Um, I think you told us before we, 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 we went to air that um, another one of your research, um, well, one of your criteria is, is looking at um, register and, and having a bit of a, a dive in it, sort of who's, who's supporting a stock, oh, yeah. um, who's behind it, the, the deal makers. Do you want to take the listeners through sort of your, your yeah. other um, tenet of your strategy? So if you just think about it, uh, say... Um, Two things I look at is the deal maker and the director. So if you just think of it as a ship, the deal maker is the guy that's going to build a ship and he's going to bring it down. The director will be a captain who's going to steer it. Um, you need both of them to be, you know, competent, or else the thing's going to fall apart one way or another. So most deal makers are sitting on millions of dollars. These guys are very, very wealthy. Um, just looking at T20s, you can see how many shares they're buying in spec companies. You can just tell how much money they're sitting on. So I think the key driver for them isn't really, you know, making money, but it's more making their clients money, making their friends money, making their family money, I think, and leaving a legacy. I think that's what drives deal makers. So when I look at a register, you're top 20 pretty much. Um, I don't want to just see the deal maker owning a lot, but I want to see his clients in there. I want to see maybe family, friends, all that stuff. I think that's a really big driving factor for a deal maker to perform. And for him, how does you just you've just mentioned because I was going to ask you about the top twenty. That's that's yep. in a company's annual report. 
but it's also uh, uploaded to the ASX after some particular types of placements as well, I believe. But uh, how does how does the uh, the speculator look for you know? Because sometimes those names in a top twenty uh, are not easily discernible unless you're yeah, familiar. Yeah, yeah. It does take time. I'll tell you that it it will take time. Um, at first, you'll have no idea what name or who you're looking for. Um, I find maybe the best way to go about it is find a top twenty. Um, find out who did the most recent raise for that company, the broker that the the lead manager that did the most recent raise, and um, then have a look at the top twenty. Um, go through each name and then do an ASX wide search for that name, find all the companies they're invested in and see if any of those companies by coincidence has the same broker involved. And when you see, say, I look at Fahim, for example, on a T20 and I see the broker is 95 Capital. I'm not a broker. Don't get it wrong. Um, but if the broker hypothetically was 95 Capital, I'd do an ASX wide search for fine and I'd look at company XYZ and then I notice again the broker is 95 Capital. At that stage, I can make a link that, look, this person fine has to be a client of 95 Capital. Um, it's not 100% proof, but it works very, very well. I'll tell you that much. So there's so many times I've seen names in the T20. I look at the broker. I look at where else they're T20 and all of a sudden you've got the same broker doing a raise for that company as well. So then I, 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 I build a system and I build a database and I write that down that, okay, you've got this person here and then I'll have a column as who's their brokers. Some, some might have multiple brokers and then I'll have another column, what companies they're involved in, in the T20 or T50. And through that, you can sort of make linkages of who knows who, um, who's a client of, you know, which broker. And when you see clients and brokers get set together, that's when you know the company is likely to do well. So it sounds like this is a pretty time consuming process for him as well then. So it's yeah, not, yeah. not a quick and easy oh, no. path <laughs> to success. Yeah. yeah I, I, think, I think that's one of the things that really takes time to build. Um, it really took, because I remember when I first began out, um, I was told that pay attention to the T20, um, look at the names in T20. And I, I ignored that. I ignored that. You know, we can call it advice. I ignored that advice and to my own detriment. But it took me a long while to realize why that person was telling me to look at the T20. Um, it's a very time-consuming process. You will have no idea who you look for at the start. But slowly, as you get, you know, start researching more and more spec companies, you will see names reappear. It's a, it's not, it's not a big society. So names, there are key players and names do reappear. And then when you start seeing names reappear, your subconscious will realize. And um, then you start making linkages and that that's when things click and you can actually start building stuff. Yeah. Terrific for him. I think just for the purpose of, uh, just the listeners as an example, and one that springs to mind, and I know we've spoken about this before, is probably the Apollo Group and yeah. um, Ian Middlemass and, and certainly the wins that he's achieved. Do you want to just, without getting too detailed, just just walk us through an example of, 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 of where you see those guys on a top 20 um, and maybe just tell us about how, 
how that sort of led to you know the the, the stellar results that they've all been on the register yeah. before. So uh, with Middlemass, he holds under. You see, the other issue is um, a lot of these guys hold under companies, so PTY LTDs, and you have to find out who's behind it. You can do a basic search, and that costs. I don't know how much that costs because I don't really use it. Um, but what you also can do is you can look for Appendix Three Ys and um, Form Six Hundred Three. So Appendix Three Ys are pretty much direct buying. And Form 603s and 604s is subholder notices. So when you hold over 5% of the company, you always have to notify whether you're buying or selling. And in that note, on those notifications, you cannot hide behind a PL. You have to reveal the full name. So look for the PL under you know those two forms, and you can slowly find out who's behind what name. So with Middlemass, for example, he holds under Arido. And um, just with him as well, I had, to, I, I got rid of bias there as well by simply um, objectifying statistically. So I'd see every time he's appointed to a company, I'd calculate how many days it take to hit max price, um, what was the maximum downside, and you know, also how many bags did he bring onto the table. Um, so statistically speaking. When you have four of the Apollo group, so Apollo is a consultancy, when you've got four of their directors on an ASX company, they're hitting almost 90% strike rate to bring over 200% to the company from their appointment in a quick succession. So it doesn't take, you know, five, 10 years to happen. It happens relatively quick pace, maybe one to two years. So that was just a statistical model I used just to... Um, you know, convince myself to buy into an Apollo company. I thought the odds are statistically in my favor, so there's no reason for me not to take it. So with Apollo, um, and the reason I really like them is you will always see a raise done. It'll be a private raise with no, usually no broker involved on a shell company. So it's just a private raise. The guys get together. They say, we're going to raise for this company, and they take, you know, a 5 to 10% stake. It's usually in middle mass and... Pierce, Mark Pierce, they're both from Apollo directors and they take about 5 to 10% of a company. So they've got a very, you know, chunky holding themselves. That's one incentive for them to perform. But the bigger incentive is you look at the register and you'll see the exact same names every single time across all their companies, which is all their friends and all their mates. And they all get set together. So that's the really driving home incentive for them to perform. They don't, you know, from my from my view anyways, I won't know until I'm in their shoes, but I imagine if I had to be in their shoes, if I had all my mates involved into a company holding, you know, 100K, 50K, 200K in a company, I'd want it to perform and I'd do my best to make it perform. And for him, I just need, I think it's really important we underscore that point because it doesn't matter who the, the entities or the parties might be, but if you can start to discern a pattern and who might be on a register because... Yeah. This is where the exceptional rewards and the exceptional risk that you talked about at the start is from my mind is if you can identify these people and they're all getting in and getting set because that's certainly what I know we've all learned over these years is if you can get set in at the ground floor with everyone, then your risk is systematically eliminated because you are there's no one in below you. So it's just about yeah. time. 
and the I suppose the opportunity cost of, of sitting and waiting, isn't it, Van? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the other problem with me starting out as well is realizing opportunity costs. That was a big issue now that you mention it. Um, you know, when I first began I'd I'd buy into a company not thinking about I'd think about, you know, this thing would likely deliver, but I wouldn't think about it might take one year or two year. Um, when you're starting off with a small account and you want to grow it out, you know, you have to be very wary of opportunity cost. When you're a bigger investor or trader, um, you can afford to, you know, take large positions across multiple stocks and, um, you know, you can run a trading account on the side or you might even have a second, third in, uh, stream of income from elsewhere outside the market. So you can afford opportunity cost to hold and wait. So if you're starting small, the one thing you really got to consider is, you want to be able to make as much money as you can in a strong market. You don't want to be stuck in something that's not going to deliver anything throughout a strong market. So opportunity cost is a big thing. And um, you want to get set at similar prices to the deal maker. It really puts in a floor. Sometimes these deal makers, they can't even, um, you know, put in a big enough raise for the company to get their stake. So they'll have to buy on market on top of that. And their friends will have to buy on market. So the friends and them will be buying at almost near or about the price of the raise they do or the dilution they do. So your job is to get set as close as you can to that price. And just with uh, Apollo Group, for example, you'll see on their registers, I don't know if I'm able to, you know, if you guys are able to post names, but you'll see on all the registers, you'll have entities like Dogmeat, you'll have entities like Bougie, um, John Paul Wellborn, AJ, uh, you'll have Mark Savage. So all these guys, they're all, the Verve Investments is another one that I always see across all of the Apollo companies. So you'll see all these guys will just be set on our Apollo shell together and they'll, they'll control 20% of the register. And by the register, I just mean the shares on the issue. So they'll control 20% of the float and it just makes it very easy for price to move when you've got all these friends holding together and taking away the free float and they'll also end up selling together. So when they do sell, the thing will drop and you'll know when to get out as well. They'll make it very clear to you. I like it. Um, just, I guess that's talking interestingly about large people with you know, perhaps a lot of money and really large companies. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit, we talked a little bit beforehand about some of the advantages that are there for traders or investors with a smaller capital pool and the, the benefits that that might actually bring. Oh yeah, there, there there are a few few advantages. There are some positive. You know, it's all not doom and gloom. Um, the first thing is you value your money a lot because you don't have much of it. You know, you're not taking wild swings. You're very very picky before you press any buy or sell button. Um, you take your time to research a company and really pick. You know, the standout opportunities, the ones that make themselves dead obvious to you. And I think. That's probably the reason why I managed to grow out my account from early and I didn't manage to blow it up again because I really valued the amount of capital I had left over and I'm like, I have to make it work with this. So I was very cautious before buying anything and I just bought the stuff that, you know, I was just like, I'm not fully convicted on it. Um, and this also gives you time to really research throughout a lot of things, really filter out a lot of things. Um, I think another edge as well is you're fearless because uh, I'm at that sweet spot age where 
you know, I'm going from studying to finishing off studying. And soon enough, I'll be, if I'm not a private investor and say hypothetically, everything fell apart and I went bankrupt, I could get a corporate job with a degree. So I'm at the sweet spot where eight to 10,000 is nothing in the long run. So I was completely fearless at the same time. I'm like, if this goes to, you know, if this goes to crap and nothing works out in the end, then I'll still be okay. Um, I didn't have any huge liability. I didn't have any kids that I need to look after. So I was, it, it, fearless is a very big, very big edge you have. You don't, you really don't, you go, you're able to undiversify and really go hard at a few good opportunities. And once again, you're, for me, at least, um, everyone has a different situation. But for me, I just had really little liabilities. I was at a sweet spot age where I felt like if I blow my remaining eight to ten thousand dollars, it's not going to mean much anyways over the next couple of years. So that was that was the edge I had, and I felt like I could fail over and over again. I could just keep coming back regardless, um, and you know nothing seriously detrimental will happen to me in my life if I lose out financially right now. So it was, it was, those were the edges for me. And, um, another one was also when you're dealing with sites, you have to be smart on how you buy in and how you sell out. For me, I didn't have to worry about any of that. I can sneak in and out of the stock, you know, don't have to worry about tall poppy syndrome. Um, don't have to worry about the attention you get when you're dealing with size because I know shareholders often get pissed off when a large holder sells. They've got just as much as a right to sell as I do, but I just don't have to deal with all the anger with other shareholders if I'm exiting a stock. So I think those are some of your edges. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Fahim, because I can think of a few examples recently because, you know, we kind of feel like the market's at a bit of an inflection point where people are starting to take risk, but if you were to fast forward a few months ago, there's, you start to see big, big, big volume drops into some things and sometimes they yeah. can go below the issue price. So I guess it's, it's kind of about what you just said a moment ago. It's really doing your research and, and really sort of working out what position you want to have with ultimate conviction. Um, how and, do you, and, yeah, sorry. I kind, of, I kind of missed that as well. Cause um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit more relaxed these days. Uh, but having your back against the wall like that, it does really bring the best out. So these days, you know, I might buy into average company and really look, I'll be happy with 50, 60% because I'll, I'll think that, okay, this was going to make maximum 120% anyways. Whereas back then I'd only buy a company where I think, okay, this only can make 500% and nothing less. So it'd really be a, really be a company that I really like. And, um, if things did go wrong, even it still end up making 200%. So it's a, it's a big edge you have when you're back against the wall. Yeah. Okay. Look in today's society with social media, um, you know, Twitter, hot copper. I mean, I'm guilty of it. I know we're all guilty of it. <laughs> we, we like someone else's idea and, and yes. there can be that following of the crowd or that fear of yes. missing out FOMO. So how have you been able to do that for him? Um, First thing is you cannot value people's opinion if they don't have their money where their mouth is, whether that's if they're talking up or talking down their stock. 
if someone's talking up their stock and you know they might be holding one to two k, you cannot value the opinion. Um, I know that is sad considering that I started with a small amount, but it's just the best way to filter around it. And um, same with on the downside as well. If someone's talking down a stock as well and trying to put you off your conviction, if they don't have their money on the line, if they don't have a bet on the line, then I, I can't take their word seriously because it's, it's very easy to throw opinions from the sidelines without you know any consequence at all. So they have to have something on the line for themselves. And that's the first thing I do to filter out opinions. But Fahim, sorry to jump in. How do you know whether somebody's going to have one or two grand worth of stock? Uh, go through the register. Right. So you're talking yes. about people that might have been in positions yourself. So it's almost, as you said, yes, you're, you're yes. looking back at just the odd punter and if they're only got a little yes. bit of stake, you're not uh, really... Yeah. I, I'd recommend every, every shareholder. Um, you know, it is tough. It takes, it takes a whole day to do it. Um, to, you know, ask takes multiple days it's a multiple day process you have to book a meeting with the share registry you have to uh, book a meet get approval from the company and then you go into the registry you spend the whole day there going to the register but i recommend every shareholder to do it if they're you know if they're heavy on a company and it really does open up your eyes up as to who's 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 doing what um who's talking up a stock and selling into it and you you get to put red flags on people pretty much that you cannot you cannot you know, essentially take this opinion seriously if they're selling the next day after they're saying something going through the roof. Um, and the other big thing about social media that I used to navigate is understand the person's strategy. Um, someone might be saying this has multi-bag potential, but their strategy might mean holding two years plus looking at a 50% drawdown for, you know, half that time and they won't even flinch at 50%. So understand their risk and their strategy before you take their opinion. Um, whereas for me, if I'm holding something for two years, one, I'll be frustrated if it hasn't moved. And two, if it's down 50%, I'm likely selling into the price they're going to be accumulating at. And I'll be selling at the lows if I'm looking at 50% down. So you got to really understand someone's strategy and, um, take value their opinion based on their strategy. Yeah, that's really useful, Fame. If we could discuss a little bit and go into some of the strategies, you mentioned the share registry for the individual companies. Yes. But could we take a step back and ask your experience and the best places you've found to actually identify companies in the first place? Which ones are worth looking at? Which ones might not be? Um, where you find that information, perhaps? Yeah, so it's broad. Um, it's hard to really... I'm a, I'm a bit wild with it, so... You know, there'll be many different places. I don't have any fixated way I always stick to. But what I do do is I start... I, so for technicals, I'll quickly delve into it. For technical trading, I go a bottom-up approach. I look at the setup. Then I base my position, position based on the sector and the overall market strength. Whereas for fundamentals, when I'm looking for a multi-bagger, it's the reverse. I look at the market, then I look at the sector, and then I look at companies within that sector. So for the first thing I'm paying attention for the market is, is it rolling over? Um, it doesn't roll over every day. I do this check maybe once a month or once every two weeks. Do you want to just define the rolling over aspect for yeah. me quickly? So you, you don't want to be buying in a market that's getting aggressively sold off 
after a huge run. So we saw that in, I think it was 2018. Yeah, so between June 2018 to January this year, we, we saw, you know, very few five-baggers. And getting set within a five-bagger before it happened was even, even more difficult. Um, but then all of a sudden from 2019 onwards, early 2019, we've seen five, ten-baggers happen in very quick succession. So it was very difficult during that June 2018 period, that, those six months. Um, so rolling over market, that was just when the market absolutely rallied and now it's getting aggressively sold off. So it's not a pullback, it's not a you know, consolidation, it's just getting aggressively sold off. And I'll look at, say, the first few things I'll look at, I'll go through all the market, I'll go through a lot of macro fundamentals. Um, but if we're talking... The big three, it will be XJO, XCC, which is the Emerging Capital Index, and the Dell. So those three I always look at. Um, and then you've got a whole lot of macro fundamentals that I just check if the market's healthy or not. So you don't want to, last place you want to be buying is that, that period where we've just had an amazing run, everyone's made money, and the market's now just getting sold off aggressively. Uh, I am guilty of it. It's not like I am perfect. I'm guilty of buying in that period and I paid the price for it as well. Um, so it's fine getting set after the market's been sold off, um, especially if you're you know, trying to get five, ten baggers. You don't have to pick the bottom. You can be, I'd say, two months on either side of the bottom. You can be two months early or two months late and you'll still do okay because um, if you're two months early, most of the aggressive selling has happened. Stocks are pretty much very illiquid. Um, there's very few sellers to be found. And if you're two months late off the bottom, that little rally and that little bounce, it's not enough to really, you know, buyers slowly come back in. They don't just jump in like that. So you'll still have time to get set at, you know, floor price or near it. So that's the first thing. I look at the market. I see what stage is this at on a very broad scale. And, um, if I'm like, okay, this is a stage where, you know, you can be buying, then I'm, I start looking at the sector and that's, that's when my idea starts to be generated. Um, sector is most important to me. I look at what the market's really hungry for. I try my best not to predict sectors. If I do like a sector that I feel like will perform very, very well, I wait for uh, the bigger companies in that sector to rise and then I wait for, say, a junior to do five, 10 bags in that, in that sector. Once that happens, that's a trigger for me to really start looking within that sector. Uh, other than that, I just look at what the market's really craving for at the moment, what it's hungry for, where that appetite is in the market. It's always changing. You know, we had this year, I can think of, we had buy now, pay later stocks. So every, the market was just craving for that next uh, afterpace type company that anything with even a hint of afterpay business model in it would just rocket. So we had buy now, pay later. Um, we had conglomerate gold last year. So I remember that as well. Market was just looking for the next, uh, you know, gold nugget play. So it, these things change quite quickly. So you gotta, you gotta be on your feet looking for what the market's looking for. And then I'll go into the individual company. Um, you can start, through a sector-wide search pretty much. So you have the ASX splits up each company into a GICS sector. And 
So there'll be stuff like healthcare, materials, um, energy, information technology, software and services. So materials will be your mining companies. So you split it, look into your mining companies, um, look at mining companies within that particular sector that the market's hungry for. And just, yeah, it just starts, starts in that, in that direction. Um, there's three places where I think I've got a grasp on, which is your tech and industrials, your mining and your shells. Um, I usually stay away from biotech and oil and gas. So those are the three places I focus on. Each one has a complete different strategy on what to look for. So it really depends on the company, the division of company I'm looking at. Cool. That's a really good starting point. Thanks, Fahim. I, I guess to go back to the premise of the the show, I suppose, and more generally about 10 baggers. Yep. I think you, you talked about um, some of the steps you, you mentioned before, looking back at the successful companies. You've yep. been doing a bit of work, I understand, on trying to identify things that characteristics that make up the 10 baggers to be. Yeah. Are you able to talk us through some of the, some of the things you've been looking into in that regard? And um, yep. yeah, any interesting findings? So yeah, just, just going back. So sometimes what I'll also do just to, you know, get a lead for research is if i if i don't have any other lead um i just simply run and scan for stocks that have 10 bagged it'll be simple as that i'll look at stocks at 10 bagged i'll look at what uh sector they're in and then i'll go to i'll either go to that sector and look for you know juniors in that sector or i'll go on the t20 of that 10 bagger and see where else the top 20 holders are invested and they'll bring you plenty of leads some other strategies I also use is if I really like a broker that's doing great deals and multi-bagging deals, I'll do a scan. So announcement scan for where else they're doing raises. If I like a director, um, I'll look at where else they're, di- you know, what other companies they have under directorship. And if I like the asset as for looking at 10 baggers. So that's one of the things I do enjoy when I see a 10 bagger is that, I want to see what the market's for. And I think that really helps empathize with the market and understand things from the market shoes. Obviously, there are plenty of companies that look good on paper, but it really comes down to, is the market going to pay for this? Because it really doesn't matter if it looks good on paper. All that matters is really what the market's going to think. So I go through 10 baggers every time they happen pretty much. And I start looking at, you know, do a case study. And that really helps you catch up on experience because one one edge a lot of people have on top of me is the experience they've got years on the market. And if I'm if I'm doing multiple case studies of ten baggers, I can sort of catch up on that experience. I can sort of simulate it through a t- uh, case study. So um, specific stuff I've been looking at recently has been say your pet. So that's one that's done um, 10 bags, more, way more than 10 bags. That thing was at five cents in 2016 from memory. And right now it's trading at $1.30, I think, $1.30, $1.40. Um, so pet, your sweet spot there was about March 2016. Um, the general rule I built right now just through my case studies is you want to be buying a company, and this is for, I'm talking, industrials or tech you want to be buying industrials or tech that are doing under i'd say 10 times revenue and under 10 times gross profit that's 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 
where your likelihood of it running turn bags will increase. So what I mean by 10 times revenue is get their revenue, their annual revenue, multiply it by 10. You want your enterprise value to be under that value. Um, so Pat, uh, your sweet spot was in a buy. Just, just, I meant to ask before yeah. for him, that's Foslock, isn't it? P-E-T. Yes, that is. P-E-T yes. is the ticket yes. Yep. So they used to be called PHK. And um, that was tipped off by, I think, some will, some listeners will know Fibs at around $0.04. Cents. He was talking that company and now we see it at $1.40, $1.50. So um, March 2016, that thing was trading about $0.05. Cents. It was trading about five times revenue, six times gross profit. They were running the ship very tight. You, you don't want to see high cash burn. You want to see management that are aware of how much money they're burning. Um, so they were running the ship very tight and they had great margins. Um, so it, that was your sweet spot to be buying. Um, another one I can think of is, oh, a recent one was UWL. So that's that telecommunication company. It was at, at a $0.20 cent IPO, it was about 30 mil market cap. It traded two times its annual revenue and about three times gross profit, uh, gross profits. And they were having 50% margins, which is great. You want, over, you want minimum 40% margin. So by 40% margin, I mean for every dollar revenue, you're bringing 40 cent profit or more than that. So, you know, that was a company trading two times your revenue, three times gross profit. They were looking for mergers. They were looking for, you know, very strong growth and frequent growth. And then you had the guy from M2, the founder of M2, join the board as well. So that almost did 10 bags. That was, I think it was a couple cents short of 10 bags, but it did it in six months. So it did it quite a fast rate. Um, BID is another one I was looking at recently as well, Bid Energy. So that one in 2018, they were predicting 4.4 mil revenue at the very minimum and they were talking about growth so you know all these companies are talking about growth they had this huge x factor about you know being robotic and scalable they could have marketed themselves as uh, artificial intelligence if they wanted to um so they had that x factor they had the revenue they were looking for fast growth uh pre-consolidation it was about two cents it was trading Around 12 mil market cap. So that's that's three times your annual revenue. And my rule is, you know, you want under 10. So these things are trading two, three times annual revenue and maybe five, six times gross profits they're pulling in each on an annual basis. So that, that's that's really your sweet spot to land 10 baggers. And so it sounds um, like they, that they do need to have be running a profit, do they? To yes, gross well, gross, gross profit. Um, okay. It doesn't have to be net profit at the start. They need to be scalable. I always avoid hardware-based businesses because it's just very difficult to scale a hardware business. Uh, when I mean scalable, I mean you want a company that can grow out its revenue uh, without growing out its overhead costs and operating expenses. So if they're high on labor and running high on um, hardware, you'll find that They'll make 100% revenue, but they'll be increasing their overheads and operating expenses by 90%, you know, 
And yes, that is scalable, but to a very small margin. They're going to meet, need to be putting like 100 million revenue to ever be profitable. So you want a company that's scalable, that's not heavy on labor, that's not heavy on hardware. Um, and that has that growth X factor. X factor can be anything, really. It's just something that'll excite the market, you know, something blue sky, something dreamy. And um, you want growth. You want a company that wants to grow fast, grow globally, international. Uh, you will notice with, say, companies like Pet and ANO, they both went international quite quick and bid as well. They were talking about global growth. But Pet and ANO, I found it interesting because both of them, you know, opened up new factories. And this wasn't recent. This was about, I think, one, two years ago. And they were doing it, I think, at the same time as well. They were opening up new factories in China. Well, Pet was in China. And they're opening up these new manufacturing factories to scale up and, you know, simply to meet demand. And I think that's a big giveaway when you when management's spending a ton of money to build a manufacturing facility, it, it truly means there's demand for the product. It's not it's not just talk anymore. So that's a big, big thing I look out for these days is are they building and investing in new infrastructure? to keep up with demand. And that's a big giveaway of a company that's going to do well. Yeah, Fahim, it's it's really interesting because, you know, you mentioned UWL and I can think of uh, another company, uh, ISX as well. ISX. Oh, yeah, yes. The market seems to be appearing to, once it breaks a certain cash flow or can see that there's a very yeah. bullish forecast, yes, the market will I, buy and pay out. Yeah, pay up big time. I guess for for us, how do we identify those next ones at the time? These next ten baggers. That's that's the real I question. Think, that's what we're out here looking for, isn't it? Yeah. So I think there there is a sweet spot to it. Um, it's usually you, you know you have a vend, and most of the time it's an R and D vend. Uh, so this company stage is in still in research and development. Um, I try to avoid that. I don't think that's a sweet spot because um, when you're in research and development, you're bringing no revenue. You've got a ton of cash burn and that's just going to lead to a ton of dilution. So your sweet spot really is, I think, two places. When your R&D company moves to finally commercialization, so you that's what happened with Dub and ISX from memory. So they'll have a long stagnant period during R&D and then out of nowhere they land a big contract finally and you know after one another comes and you finally see this company it's going to move into commercialization that's one sweet spot the other sweet spot i reckon is when a company moves from cash flow negative to cash flow positive when they finally prove up they're profitable that's another sweet spot for me um but for 10 baggers, you do have to take a bit more risk. So you do have to be slightly more, more early on the boat. So I'd say it's that, it's that move from, you know, commercial uh, research and development to commercialization. And one that, I, that comes to mind for me, which was, it wasn't 10 bags, it was just short of it, was integer asset management. Um, I don't hold that anymore. But... They were at that sweet spot. That's ticket code IAM, isn't it? Yes, yes, that is. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in buying it anymore. I'm, I don't hold it anymore. I've got, you know, no interest in it whatsoever. But it, it was one back in the day. And 
I've got to also be aware we were in a very strong market then as well. So that could be a contributing factor, but it wasn't that sweet spot of, you know, it's this dreamy blue sky X factor technology disruptive. And they were just moving in from R and D to commercialization. And that was enough to 10 bag it. Well, almost, I think it was nine bags. Um, of course, they got completely stuck at that commercialization stage. They landed one contract, few small contracts, and that's it. They they never managed to grow grow through past that phase, and that's why it's where it's at today. But um, it was in that sweet spot, and sometimes that's all you need, really. That that company that's just finally moving from like a dreamy R and D technology to physically showing that they're commercial and they're a real business. So things can move quite quickly. It doesn't guarantee success. Um, you know, 99% of these specs will end up back where they start regardless. So I'm not interested in, you know, picking, it's not my niche. There are people that can do it and they are very talented to pick, you know, your A2Ms, your APTs, your, your wise techs. Uh, for me, it's, it's not like that. I just want, you know, just to hit that sweet spot enough to get multi bags. And that's, that's that. I don't, I don't feel like this thing's going to be the next APT at all. I guess just to round off, because you've given the listeners um, so much in terms of research, is there any uh, 10 baggers out there or anything that you're particularly liking or if you have a few punts um, that you um, think? <laughs> just to talk my own book a little. We need um, to clear that, yeah. Yeah, so for me, there's two things I am thinking right now uh, that come to mind. There's... One where I it will ten bag I think from the price I got in, uh, it has doubled right now, so it's probably gonna five bag I think four five bags, so that's got to be kept in mind, and that company is OVL, and that's because they just got a rare earth project which is a clay rare earth, so basically China controls ninety percent of our rare earths. And 30% of those rare earths come from five clay deposits in China. Uh, these clay deposits are incredibly difficult to find. And only three have been discovered so far in history outside of China. Uh, one stuck on an island. One was an accidental discovery. And the third one is hopefully in OVL's hand if they do sign it off the formal agreement. It's an incredibly rare deposit, and the beauty of it is it's a clay ionic deposit. So you've got ionic are just very weak chemical bonds. You can pour acid onto the clay, and the rare earths fall off. And the reason is Australia has so many rare earth deposits, but only one producer, and the reason for that is your capex is huge. Your capex and opex is huge. Um, they're incredibly sensitive to rare earth prices. So it just it's not economic feasible, most of Australia's deposits. Uh, OVL's CapEx will likely be under 30 mil, which will... Do you be- want to just quickly take through CapEx and OPEX? Because I don't think we've ever yeah. explained that either. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Let's go into that. Um, so your CapEx is your capital expenditure, basically your cost to get the mine started up. Your OPEX, I, in my opinion, is more important. It's, it's really going to show if it's going to be a profitable profitable business or not so for me the general rule that i keep in mind and this is just a very general rule it's not 100 percent, but it, it can help listeners is you want 60 dollars worth of recoverable 
recoverable material in one ton of ore for an open cut mine. So for a shallow mine, that's not like, you know, 500 meters underground, you want $60 worth of ore within one ton. And the best way to go about that is find the grade, which is why everyone says grade is king. Um, find the grade within the deposit times the grade by the mineral price. So if you've got gold, for example, you've got say 1.5 grams of gold recoverable times that by 1,800, sorry, 1,800 ounces. So I don't know what's that in grams. I think that comes exactly down to 60 grams. So if you've got 1.5 grams of gold, it's worth $60 pretty much. So you don't want to be buying companies with deposits under 1.5 grams. It's going to make it tough to be feasible um, because $45 will likely go just for transporting the ore and cutting it out and mining it. Uh, and $10 will go to overhead maintenance pretty much and uh, you know admin expenses for each ton of ore. So you're spending about $50, $55 on each ton of ore. You want the ore to be worth at least $60. And that's still a very thin margin there for all that risk you're taking for the whole mining process, for all that capital expenditure to get the mine started. You're only making $5 per ton profit, which isn't huge. And it's very sensitive to commodity price. So your bare minimum, your bare minimum really is, you know, you want $60 worth of material in one ton of ore. And um, that's equivalent to about if I'm, my maths might be completely off here, but from memory that should be equivalent to about 1.5 grams of gold per ton. Uh, you can do the same with zinc, calculate your zinc percentage and calculate how much zinc's in one ton, but you want it to be greater than 60%, uh, $60, sorry. And they'll, be, they'll cover your operating expenses. So your operating expenses will be about $55 per ton. Yeah, terrific. And so you that's, made, by the way, that's, that's just for, uh, you know, a first world country. So if you're operating in, say, jurisdictions like USA, Canada, Australia, stuff like that, um, obviously your operating expenses will drop if you're operating in, say, Africa, which is why I like African assets, uh, because they are more economic feasible. Um, you do have to deal with more sovereign risk at the same time. But at the end of the day, to me, it's just the numbers that matter. Yep. So thanks for that. I'm sure the listeners will um, have plenty of um, reading themselves to do on the topic, but that's a great start. Um, so you were mentioning uh, OVL, and we probably should declare for our listeners that um, both Joel, Joel and I have a little position in that but uh, as well. Um, but perhaps just take us through why, why you, you like it. Yeah, the numbers just make great sense. Um, so because it's a cl- hard rock deposits are very hard to extract rare earths from. The beauty of this you know, asset is the fact that it's clay. It's, it's not what's inside, but the fact that it's just clay so you just drop a bit of acid into the clay. Uh, you, you know, it doesn't need a full processing plant. You don't need those huge operating expenses. You don't need those huge, uh, you know, capital expenditures either. Um, so your capex, opex is low. Your margins are very big. So it becomes a very economic, feasible asset. So it's, it's really got a genuine chance of, you know, pushing through to the late stages. Of course, there's so many risks involved as there is with picking any 510 bagger. There are thousands of risks you've got to consider. 
Uh, if I had to talk about risk within this project, I'd say it would be recovery and, you know, getting environmental approval. Um, because when you do leach in situ, so when you're dropping acid into the ground, what happens is it will end up damaging the surrounding soils. So there are, there, it is also environmentally damaging. So getting environmentally approval for these projects is slightly tougher. Um, the benefit is these things are very, clay deposits are very low in radioactive material. So that's where your benefit is in the environment. Um, so when you separate the rare earths, you end up with very, late, very little radioactive waste. So with your hard rock assets, you get plenty of radioactivity. So there are ups and downs. There are plenty of risks involved. But, you know, if rare earths can hold up current prices, this project becomes incredibly profitable. The problem is there's a lot of shares on issue already, which is why I don't think, you know, it might turn back, but I don't think it will. I think it's more likely to five bag. I might get 10 bags from the lowest price I bought, but from here on, it's at 0.5 now. So from here on, you know, four or five bags. Um, it's really important we temper enthusiasm. We're not making any recommendations oh, yeah. by any stretch of the mean. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah. the, the purpose of this podcast is to trawl for 10 baggers and look at potential things. And, and certainly, we've had a lot of noise from West Farmers uh, and some rare earths out of China and, and the trade yeah. wars. So it's a particular pun. And I think you mentioned something really interesting, Fahim, where you said that there could be some environmental issues and there could be some issues yes. in production. And I can think back to um, an earlier podcast which you've listened to with Warwick about, you know, we're not investing in these types of businesses. Yeah. We are just getting in for the ride at a right Yes, 100%. Yeah. Um, and on that note, Fahim, I think we probably um, should try and wrap things up. This has been absolutely so interesting and fascinating to hear your insights on what constitutes your research. Look, uh, I'm, 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 no, I'm no, you know, genius. You guys had Warwick on, you guys had Adrian. Warwick's a huge fund manager, so I, I really enjoy his work as well. So I'm just, I'm just happy to be here. I'm happy to be in the position I'm in today. Um, I'm grateful you guys had me on the podcast. I think it's a very cool idea. We get to see, you know, the market from everyone's perspective, from a fund manager, from a director, from a punter, small-time punter like me as well. So, you know, being just on the same podcast as people like Warwick and Adrian just makes me happy myself. So it's good to be here. That's a pleasure, Fahim. And if, if people do want to get in touch with you, what's your? Did you, are you happy to if anyone wants to reach out, Fahim? And if so, what's the best yeah, method? So, you know, uh, shoot me a DM. Um, hopefully nothing too dodgy. Uh, it'll be on – my DMs are open on Twitter. So you can just do a search for F and then 952I and that should bring it up. Fantastic. And we'll check a link down there in the notes as well. Terrific. Thanks. Thanks again, Fahim. I think um, I've said this to you and I know Joe will agree. You have a very bright future and you're very modest. Uh, I hope so. You know, with this game, you just never know. (laughs) It could be one day you're over everything and then the next day you blow up. So keep me on my toes. That's right. It's about staying solvent and avoiding risks. So, um, Okay, thanks again. For no worries. Thank you, Thank you very Cheers. much, guys. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of the show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.